Let's bow in a moment of prayer before we open God's word. Dear Lord, in this moment, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. We pray that you would enlighten our minds to understand it. And we pray that in this moment, we wouldn't simply hear words or be introduced to ideas, but that your spirit would be operative in our minds and in our hearts to bring about necessary change, to point us perhaps for the first time or for the, the thousandth time to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is hope and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to reread with you our text for this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I encourage you when you have time later today to read perhaps chapters 1 and 2 at least to get the context for these words, and I'll be saying something about the context in a moment. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Grace Valley Church is good news for the town of Dundas. You are a beachhead of the wonderful and amazing kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are a base for the dissemination of love and hope. I wonder about Grace Valley. What I wonder about Blessings Christian Church, the church that I pastor, how do people perceive the church? How do people outside the church perceive it? How do people inside the church perceive it? What is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ all about? Well, being a church means having a creed, having a set of beliefs. Being a church means having a code, living in a certain way. Being a church means having a community, sharing life together. Being a church means having a charter. What is the charter of the church? I find the charter for the church in the words of Jesus when he said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Just as Jesus became human and inhabited the human world, so we are sent to inhabit our communities. Just as Jesus inhabited our nature and our world for the world's betterment, so we need to inhabit our communities, our neighborhoods for their betterment. And how can we better our neighborhoods? Well, we need to promote the gospel. Well, what's involved in promoting the gospel? Well, I suppose you could say you need to introduce people to Jesus. You need to summon people to change, to repentance. 
You need to invite them to church. But here's a reality that most of us here face. We have jobs. We have hobbies. We have interests. We have a lot of things that occupy our time. Does it make any sense for us to be so busy with our jobs and so busy with our interests and so busy with our hobbies when we live in a world where people are lost? When we live in a world where so many people are disoriented, so many people are in need of Jesus. And you should know this morning that there are people who say it really doesn't make sense for us to be so busy with work. It really doesn't make sense for us to be playing music or to be creating art or to have a big vegetable garden. Vernon McGee is a radio preacher who once said, there's no sense polishing brass on a sinking ship. The world is populated by people who are living and dying without Christ. Perhaps it's a luxury we can't afford to be spending so much time with these individual pursuits. I want to alert you this morning to an assumption behind that perspective, behind that logic. And the assumption is that we're, as human beings, simply souls in need of salvation, simply sinners in need of forgiveness. And I want us this morning to enlarge our understanding of what it means to be a human. And I want to do so by posing the question, is it permissible for us to eat? Is it legitimate for us to prepare food? Is it acceptable for us to have meals together? What do you think of eating? I have a friend in a previous church who once told me that he would be content just to have daily nourishment reduced to pills. That's all he needs, just to take maybe a couple pills for breakfast, a couple of pills for lunch, and a couple of pills for supper. In his mind, he didn't need the smell of parsley, didn't need the texture of a steak, didn't need, didn't need the, the taste of watermelon. Just, it'd be great if we could just have it all in pills. I want to say to you this morning that I'm in the opposite camp. I was speaking at a conference a couple of years ago where the person introducing me said that I'm a runner uh, who's run you know, a couple of marathons and several half marathons. And it was really, really awkward for me when this person was introducing me because I don't exactly have the profile of a runner. I have a slender physique, but I'm quite modest about it and I like to hide it. And I got up to the podium and I said, the truth be told, I'm a runner, but I'm also an eater, and I'm more proficient at the latter category. <laughs> what does food mean for you? Well, you say food can be a temptation, and it can be. 
we sometimes resort to what we call comfort foods, right? When life is particularly hectic. And these foods can give us a sense of peace and tranquility. Food can become an idol. Food can master people in very tragic ways. Addiction specialists tell us that addictions to food are some of the most difficult addictions to overcome. What does food mean for you? What does food mean for you in terms of your relationship with the Lord? Let me pose this question. What do you think is more important, saying a prayer or eating a sandwich? You say, well, saying a prayer. That's what Jesus taught us. But I want to say to you this morning, what did Jesus ask you to pray for? He asked you to pray for food. Give us this day our daily bread. So in the time that we have together this morning, I want us to reflect on what we might call the spirituality of food. The significance of food, perhaps for being a missional church, And I want to do so in light of these striking words from Ecclesiastes 2. A person can do nothing better. Think about that. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Nothing better? Well, we need to widen our lens at this point and think about the message of Ecclesiastes as a whole. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by a wise teacher, probably Solomon. Immense debate about the authorship of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon. And as an older person, he's reflecting on life, recounting what has happened in his life in order to impart to young disciples wisdom. Now, there are those who disagree with this interpretation and say, actually, what the book of Ecclesiastes is about is the confessions of a bitter cynic. What W.H. Eliot calls, listen to this, a selfish and callous old man of the world who was found at the end, who found nothing at the end but a dire disillusionment. What do we have here? The teachings of a wise person or the confessions of a bitter cynic, a callous old man? Well, I think that one of the reasons why you have this debate relates to how a particular word in the book is translated. It's the word meaningless, which is a word you find At the end of verse 26, you find it, in fact, throughout the book. This, too, is meaningless. Other uh, translations have vanity, vanity of vanity. What you need to know this morning that beneath that English translation is the Hebrew word vapor or mist. And I think that that gives an entirely different impression of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, everything in the world is vaporous. Everything is foggy. Everything is misty. It's puzzling. It's mysterious. It's elusive. It kind of defies reason, defies understanding. How is this so? 
Well, you can look through chapter 1 and discover that within creation there are countless cycles, things repeating without apparent meaning. So the sun rises and the sun sets, and the sun rises and the sun sets, and you say, what's the point? It's the same thing that occurs and recurs again and again. The rivers flow, the writer says, chapter 1, but they never empty. I remember standing looking at Niagara Falls when I was a little boy, saying, how is this possible that this river never runs empty, right? You have 150,000 uh, gallons of water falling over the falls every minute. The, the river never runs dry. It's just a, a cycle that repeats. It's mysterious. It's puzzling. It's vaporous. And what the writer observes about creation, he observes about life itself. This is true of work. There's a certain repetitiveness to work, a certain monotony. You clean the house one day, and the next day it's dirty, and you need to repeat the task. You weed your garden one day, and the next day it's full of weeds again. Meaningless, apparently meaningless, cycles that repeat. You work hard on a project, death intrudes, and it's handed over, the writer says, to a fool. You say, what's my legacy? What's the significance of my work? What gain, this is chapter 1, verse 3, what gain does a person get from all of his labor? It's mysterious. It's puzzling. It's perplexing. Life under the sun, this temporal existence is vaporous and elusive. What should we do? Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. In the mysteries and perplexities of the world, there's nothing better than to eat and drink and toil, for in these we find satisfaction and contentment. Now, on the surface, this seems like hedonism, right? Pursuing pleasure over all other ends and objectives. Eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We can't make heads or tails out of the world, so let's just enjoy what we can. On the surface, it seems like hedonism. I want to argue this morning that the perspective of hedonism is very far removed from the perspective of the writer of Ecclesiastes. Well, what then is he saying? He's saying that when God first created the world, he created people to eat and drink. And he created people to work. Let's think about work for a second. God placed Adam and Eve in a garden in Eden. Eden is related to the Hebrew word for delight. I think of it as wonderland. He placed them in a garden in wonderland. And he said, I want you to tend this park. I want you to supervise the animals, domesticate them, put a bridle on that horse, make it useful. I want you to guard this park from 
evil intrusion. Who knows, maybe a serpent will show up. I want you to farm this land. And so we have to think to ourselves, you know, Wonderland, this garden in this park, was not a resort, was it? We shouldn't think that Adam was just like sunbathing on the grass somewhere. There was work to do. He had to study the animals, that's science. He had to design implements for farming, that's technology. He had to make things out of the world, that's culture. Life in the Garden of Eden is remarkably urban. Science, technology, culture. When everything was right, when nothing was wrong, when there was no brokenness, Adam had to work. In the world where everything was right, where nothing was broken, there was food. And at the outset, God gave Adam this incredible menu. The whole world, in some sense, was a menu for Adam. He could eat of any tree but one. The fruit of any tree was available for him, for his enjoyment. Have you ever thought about the significance of eating? Eating is a thing that's easy to ignore when things are going well. We assume it the way that maybe fish assume water. Our only concern with food is whether it's available and whether it's affordable because we live in a culture where we have grocery stores where shelves are stocked with food. Have you ever thought about the significance of eating? Here's what Leon Cass says. This is a quotation on the front of the bulletin, by the way. Leon Cass is a Jewish bioethicist. He says, compared to wisdom, eating may be a humble subject, but it is no trivial matter. It is the first and most urgent activity of all animal and human life. We are only because we eat. Much of human life is in practice organized around this necessity. So there's farming, and there's agriculture, and there's butchering, and there's stocking, and there's transportation, and there's the manufacturing of tables at which we can eat, the manufacturing of chairs on which we sit to eat. There is the science of food, the science of yeast and leaven. There's the industry of kitchen gadgets and kitchen utensils. Think of everything in the world that's related to eating. Eating expresses what it means to be embodied humans. Eating captures what it means to be people with bodies. We cannot survive if we are not ingesting other parts of creation. We share that with the animals, but how we address it is very distinctive because God has given us royal stewardship over creation. And this includes science and technology and agriculture.
But now you say the world is broken and we are sinners. And so what does that mean? Jesus came to the world, didn't he, to save the world. But Jesus came to save the created world. And redemption is the stuff of creation. Jesus didn't simply come to redeem sinners. He came to recover paradise. He came to restore creation. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. And he sends us to promote the gospel. And I want to remind us this morning that promoting the gospel is not simply announcing or proclaiming the forgiveness of sins for sinners, but it's proclaiming this great renovation project that Jesus is doing, which involves the restoration of the body. Our ultimate destiny is not to be bodiless souls. Our ultimate destiny is to be embodied so that on the new earth, we are still eating and drinking and working. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is the great exemplar of this. Jesus died on the cross. Many of you will know this. Three days later, rose from the empty grave. On the day on which he rose, he met up with his disciples. They were flabbergasted to see him. They doubted him. He, Jesus invited them to touch his body. And then he said, and it's a part of the story that we often overlook, he says to his disciples, do you have anything for me to eat? Isn't that striking? The resurrected body of Jesus is a body that eats, is a body that needs food. And the text says they gave him broiled fish. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us about the basics of the Christian life. And he says, you know, there are three things, just three things that you really need to pray for frequently. You need to pray for pardon for sins, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You need to pray for protection in trials, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And you need to pray for provision of food. Don't just pray for forgiveness. Pray for food. They are equally ultimate, equally important. And when we pray for daily bread, we're praying for God to bless the industries of agriculture and manufacturing, the science of food, the science of yeast, of leaven, of fermentation. We're praying for culture. Both uh, Paul, this is Paul Vandenbrink, now not the Apostle Paul, probably easily confused in your minds. <laughs> Paul and I both have been influenced, influenced uh, profoundly by a Scottish uh, theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. 
He was led to Christ by an individual who was converted by a professional typist. Now, some of you here might not know what a typist is, but before there were computer keyboards, there were typewriters where you would type to produce documents. This particular individual found himself in a room of professional typists where one was typing with unusual consistency. And this person approached this typist and said, I just admire the consistency with which you type. And she said, well, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe he's called me not just to be a typist, but to be the the best typist I can be. And I type to the glory of God. And it was this person that led him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was that person that led Sinclair Ferguson to Christ. So I like to think of Sinclair Ferguson as somebody who was brought to Christ through typing. Isn't that something? Jesus redeems us so that we love God and serve him, cling to him, honor him. And that's why when we pray, we pray for food, but we pray for food in modest amounts. Give us this day our daily bread. That's all we're asking for. With that, we should be content. Now, I say this because of something we encounter in the Proverbs. You know that as you read through the book of, you know, perhaps you don't know this. If you haven't read through Proverbs yet, it's not a problem. There's lots of time to read through Proverbs. But when you get to the end of Proverbs, you, you get to these sayings of Lemuel and Agur. And in the wisdom of Agur, there's this proverb, give me neither riches nor poverty. I wonder if you've ever encountered that. I'm interested in what Agur says after that. Give me neither riches nor poverty. And then, then he says, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Jesus came to save the world, to save what he has created. He wants us to have a taste of recovered paradise, a taste here and in the new earth of how it used to be when everything was right. Because life is mysterious. And there is so much about the world we simply can't understand And the book of Ecclesiastes is an invitation to trust in God. It's an invitation to say you don't need to understand everything, but recognize what God has given you to do and what God has given you to enjoy. It's a summons to trust in God. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth, in one of his writings, talks about these moments he would have when it seemed as if time was arrested and he experienced enjoyment and satisfaction. And I wonder if you've ever had that. Well, your life is really busy and you have so many concerns pressing on you, so many perplexities you cannot unravel, but you're at a meal with your family 
and you enjoy the food and a glass of wine and you feel a sense of satisfaction and you say, this is from the hand of God. Well, it's Jesus who exemplified this, isn't, isn't it? The life of Jesus was a life of suffering. I mean, we don't really have any indication in the Gospels, do we, that Jesus smiled. And yet we know that Jesus enjoyed life because he was so often feasting with sinners, tax collectors, people on the margins of society, so much so that the Pharisees said of him, he is a drunkard and a glutton, spending time enjoying food and drink with people he loved. And there's something that Jesus did in every one of these instances. You find it in the account where he multiplies the, the bread and the fish. You find this in the account where he celebrates the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper. He takes the fish, the loaves, the bread, the cup, and he gives thanks. It's why the Lord's Supper is sometimes called the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. He gives thanks. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. Thank you for the science of yeast in the bread, the science of fermentation in the wine. Thank you for those who have produced these things. Thank you for science, for technology, for culture. Thank you. Thank you. What does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ? It means to promote the gospel. But promoting the gospel isn't simply announcing the forgiveness of sins, but the restoration of the body, the recovery of paradise, the renewal of culture. Promote the gospel in every way. And the dinner table is a great place to promote the gospel where you invite, as Jesus did, your friends, your neighbors, you, your co-workers, to share with them what you have received, what God has given you. Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit and without gratitude ate it. So that the verbs of taking and eating for Adam and Eve are verbs of sin. Of sin. And I want us this morning as we prepare to conclude to recognize that for Jesus, the verbs taking and eating are verbs of salvation. Because he takes the bread, he breaks it, turns to his disciples and says, take and eat. There's a miracle in eating, isn't there? There's a miracle in all eating, even if it's a Big Mac. Because whatever it is that we ingest, with the possible exception of yogurt, whatever we ingest is dead. And God uses it to keep us alive. I find that to be a miracle. You stuff peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in your little kids' mouths, and they grow. How does that happen? It's the miracle of eating. Dead material somehow 
keeps us alive. But you know, we all need another miracle because by nature, we're dead in sins and trespasses. And we need new life. Life in which we're no longer estranged from God, no longer alienated from him, but brought near to him, reconciled to him. And for that, we need the death of Jesus. Crucified body, shed blood. But it's life for us. And that's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Some of you will be partaking. Some of you will be watching. But it's a reminder to us that we enjoy this new life through the death of Jesus, crucified body, shed blood. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray that you would always enlarge our perspective to see the whole world as your creation, to see that so much of life around us speaks to your grace and your goodness. We pray that you would help us to turn to Jesus, away from ourselves and our pathetic resources to turn to him, find life in him, and understand that we are being brought back to the way things were, where we can be busy in this world once again participating in the great renovation project that Jesus has initiated and that Jesus is funding. Help us in everything we do to bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.